I love the fact that you wrote down your comments on your iPhone. That's kind of the White House equivalent of preparing your Oscars acceptance speech just in case. <laughs> but he didn't prepare his wardrobe, did you, Hottie? You forgot a tie. I went to a tie store. The cheapest tie they had was $200. The white shirt I was wearing, the top button wouldn't button it. I don't know whether the shirt shrunk or my neck grew during the pandemic. The shirt shrunk, <laughs> trust me. That's the way it works. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. President Joe Biden brought together top executives from the nation's biggest tech, financial services, and energy companies this week to address the growing challenge of cybersecurity. In the room were tech CEOs, including Amazon's Andy Jassy, Microsoft's Satya Nadella, and Apple's Tim Cook. I've invited you all here today because you have the power the capacity uh, and the responsibility, I believe, to raise the bar on cybersecurity. So what happened next? And did any real solutions emerge? Our guest on this episode of the GeekWire podcast was in that closed-door meeting. Seattle-area investor and entrepreneur Hadi Partovi, CEO of Code.org, the National Computer Science Education Nonprofit, shares details and his key takeaways coming up. The fact that Partovi was in the White House this week for a repeat visit was all the more remarkable given his own life story. He and his twin brother, Ali, were six years old in Iran during the 1979 revolution. They later immigrated to the U.S. and found success as entrepreneurs and computer scientists. We'll talk about that extraordinary life journey and the future of the American dream later on in the show. Hadi Partovi, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for hosting me. Can you describe what it was like inside the White House Cybersecurity Summit with President Biden and all of these tech CEOs? What was it like to be in that room and, and what did you see? Sure. It was a very unique event. It's not my first time being at the White House, uh, but it was my first time with this administration. And it was for sure the first time with the collective set of people who were there. President Biden hosted a summit for cybersecurity inviting the, the CEOs of the largest technology companies and CEOs across financial services, energy, insurance, as well as leaders from education to bring really attention to the national importance of cybersecurity as something that is hurting all of us and to basically increase collaboration amongst these groups to help us all recognize that this isn't one company's problem. It's not one government's problem. It's a collective problem that's only going to get solved via collaboration together. And, you know, it was my first time being in a summit together with all the CEOs from tech. There's multiple of them that, that you know, I've worked with on a one-on-one -on -one basis or have collaborations with their companies, but seeing them all in one place was certainly unique. And going from the White House to the Rose Garden to the East Room with the president, there's always, you know, it's it's kind of a very special, unique thing at the power of the president to call a meeting like that and people just show up and change their schedules around, uh, you know, is, is incredible. So what was the substance of the conversation? I know, obviously, President Biden started by giving some public comments, and then there were things behind closed doors. So I recognize you may be limited in what you can say, but can you give us the, the gist of what was discussed around the subject of cybersecurity? Um, there was a Q&A with different members of the folks who were present. So he, he, you know, he made comments on the record before the press, but then he wanted to ask questions from different members uh, of the different organizations that were there, the leaders, to, to get their thoughts on different things. 
Um, for example, he asked from Satya and Adela the, the role that the technology companies can play and what they are looking for either from each other or from the government to help. And Satya aptly mentioned the importance of cybersecurity standards. He made an analogy to seatbelts and other standards in the car industry that have increased the safety of cars and pointing out that in cybersecurity, the, the expectations of software are, you, you know, they're not nearly as clear of software or of systems or of, of the cloud or so on and the, and the importance of standards, which is something that is going to be worked on with NIST to, to establish. Or uh, President Biden asked somebody from the insurance industry about how insurers, what role can insurers play? And then a conversation ensued in terms of the when breaches happen, the interplay between an insurance company, the insured, you know, the person who suffers a breach and law enforcement. And what are the, you know, what are the ways that the insurance company or the, the person whose organization that is breached can aid law enforcement while ensuring anonymity, business continuity and things like that? Uh, because sometimes these security breaches go without publicity and somebody whose systems have been breached might not want publicity for all the right reasons, but they do want law enforcement support uh, to help catch the bad guys. And the insurance company is often caught in the middle as well. Then there was a conversation similarly between the president uh, and Jamie Dimon in terms of how financial services, both in terms of protecting you know, their own clouds, but also the role they play in ransom attacks and the collection or hunting down of ransoms or so on was a conversation that happened. And then lastly, he asked me about the role of education with respect to the workforce in cybersecurity. I actually published my comments on that because I, um, I'm i not sure if anybody else prepared, but I was ready. I basically was like, in case he calls on me, I want to be ready. Uh, so I was like furiously writing notes on my iPhone. Um, you know, to be ready if, if he's going to call me, what am I going to say? You know, some of those other folks are very well-spoken and I'm not sure, for example, if Satya had prepared comments or if he just naturally things flow off his tongue in a poetic fashion. Uh, but for me, uh, preparation is really important. So I wrote down what I wanted to, to say back if I get asked to, to talk. And the Twitter thread is great and we'll link to that. And also we want to jump in. I want to get more of your perspectives on education but just stepping back for a moment, I'm curious, walking out of the meeting, big picture, did you feel more positive about the direction we were headed or were you like, oh, crap, we're in worse shape than I even imagined? Where, where did you come out of the meeting feeling? I felt more positive, but I should be clear. I feel that's because I started not very positive. Uh, and you know, the, the reason I say that is our country is in a cyber war. I don't think people recognize that. We recognize that we're in a war in Afghanistan that we're pulling out of. Uh, we don't recognize that every single day, every single computer in our country is getting attacked. And there's many of these attacks that we fend off, but the ones that aren't getting fended off, they're not small attacks. They're major. You know, with the Colonial Pipeline, if that hadn't gotten back running when it did, we were days away from catastrophic problems in the country. Things that impact utilities, energy sources, water sources, we, we rely on water to live, you know, and if somebody can cut those things off, that's not a small deal. It's a big, big deal. And there's much more fragility in the digital infrastructure of our country than people recognize. And when you start from that baseline of like, oh, shoot, this is not, you know, it could go badly. The fact that these folks have all come together and just the general sense of we, we're going to do something about it 
you know, I walked away optimistic that that there's attention on it. Companies made commitments, and there was a real commitment to collaboration, which is I think key because you know the tech companies compete obviously, but they have to collaborate in this space. Everybody in the country needs to really honestly connect, collaborate in this space because we're fighting a, a an invisible set of enemies, and they they take advantage of weaknesses between the gaps, uh, and and the only way to address that is to to collaborate. Yeah, Hadi, I love the fact that you wrote down your comments on your iPhone. That's kind of the White House equivalent of preparing your Oscars acceptance speech, just in case. <laughs> but he didn't prepare his wardrobe, did you, Hadi? I saw your tweets where you, you you polled your audience on Twitter whether you should wear your Code.org hat or not. And I think they gave you good advice by saying no. And and you forgot a tie. <laughs> yeah, the thing I left out, I went to a tie store and then uh, I bought what must be the world's most expensive tie. The cheapest tie they had was $200, which, oh you know, for something I'm probably, you know, I was like, whatever it's going to take, I, I, I want a tie. But either way, I also needed to get a new shirt. All of this is right, literally right before entering the White House. Uh, so I, I basically had an entire wardrobe change. All right. Well, we do have some things of substance to talk about related specifically to education. And I want to get into that right after the break. You're listening to GeekWire, and we'll be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. And our guest this week is Hadi Partovi. He is a tech entrepreneur and, and investor and the CEO of the National Computer Science Education nonprofit, Code.org, which is based right here in Seattle. Hadi, you were at this White House meeting. And as we said, you had some very specific comments for President Biden. And it was really striking. You called the cybersecurity problem an education problem. Why is that the case? So when the president called on me, he first asked about the cybersecurity workforce, uh, and that was that's the start of the role of education in cybersecurity. Just as we have an army or a navy, we need a cyber defense workforce. You, whether you call it a cyber army or, or not, uh, the, the work of cybersecurity requires people, and we are way understaffed, either at the government level or at the corporate level. There's not enough people doing this. But that's actually the smaller problem. Educating our future cyber defenses is the smaller problem. The bigger issue is that the weakest link in our nation's defenses is people. And 89% of all cyber attacks that you hear about didn't happen because the technology didn't work. It's because one person made an, a simple avoidable mistake. They clicked on a link that said, oh, you know, enter your password. And then suddenly the attackers got on their computer. And then from their computer, they got onto another computer. And then lo and behold, an entire system got taken down. And the pandemic is making this worse because we're all shifting to remote work, which means dad's computer, which works, dad works for a utility and mom works for a bank and their daughter downloads something that they shouldn't have. And that something infects the mom's computer, which then sets off the bank, you know? Um, so the person who's working for the bank might be doing everything correct, but they're on a home network whose security gets compromised. 
because something the kids do. The world of remote work is increasing the digital connections between all of our computers and, and actually makes things less safe. And so the reason cybersecurity in this country is an education problem is we need to educate every American on the basics of how to stay safe online. The, the number one way things get breached or hacked isn't because the technology didn't work. It's because somebody used the same password across all their sites and apps, or somebody didn't have their computer locked with a password, or they didn't install the software updates, or they didn't use two-factor authentication on their email. These simple set of things that if everybody did them, 89% of all the problems in, the, in cybersecurity would have been avoided. This seems like a daunting challenge, though, to educate. Those are pretty basic things that you just listed. But for the majority of people, as you know, Hadi, people just aren't listening or paying attention or going to do those types of things. So how do you start the process to educate folks to do some of those basic things that you just laid out? That's a good question. I can tell you small ideas or one big idea. Um, actually, I don't want to say small ideas, medium ideas. Every one of the organizations that was present came out with their own commitments on things that they're doing. For example, at Code.org, we committed to educating 3 million students through K-12 through on precisely these things. And so that's, that's engaging the, the one-third of U.S. classrooms that learn on Code.org are now going to get introduced to these things through their, their school system. But 3 million people, while it's a large number, is, you know, 1% of Americans. The big idea that, uh, you know, emerged from my subgroup, and I don't know whether I can say that it's going to happen, but it's, it's certainly something I'd like to see happen. So, and this is probably the first time I'm talking about it externally, is can we, could we get all of the people who were in that room and more, educators, companies, governments, to collectively have a national call to action and pick one day or one week to everybody, you know, mothers, fathers, children, employees, employers, students collectively go through this. Uh, because it's not that, you know, to, to stay safe online, you don't need to spend a month of learning a course. It's a few hours of learning the things you need to do and then actually doing them. Most of us know we need to set up two-factor authentication but we're like, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. Or, or, you know, we should get a password manager and different strong passwords. But it's like, oh, I'm kind of lazy. I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, I'll just use the same password on this site. What's the worst thing that can happen? Most people make that decision on an individual basis. But if we had a national call to action that we are all fixing this and everybody did it on the same day, I think it would change things. I got the day for you. Pi day. Pi day is a, that's an interesting day. <laughs> March 14th. Yes, yeah. yes. So yeah. It can be it can be uh, geeky. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that the one day solution would do it, but that was my best idea for like, and it only works if lots of people collectively say we're going to do this. And my experience for, for coming up with that concept is what happened with us with the hour of code at code.org. The hour of code started as a as a one person idea was to Let's get 10 million students to learn one hour of coding. But it may have been my idea, but what made it powerful is we got 400 partners reaching out to 100,000 teachers to then do this in their classrooms and really creating a movement around it that is now, you know, for years on, over and over has had over a billion times the hour of code has been done. And what I was thinking is, can we create something of that nature where it's not about one organization or, or, or one government? but that is really sort of a collective coming together with lots of people saying 
we should do this? And could we create space for every major employer to tell all of their employees, take today off and do this stuff, you know, or creating time for people saying, this is the time we are all going to spend on changing our passwords and turning on two-factor authentication and installing the updates, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It It, it is laziness. I mean, it's it's not the first thing you really want to do is set up, uh, your, you know, change your passwords. You know, it's not a fun activity to go through. So I think having the time and mental space to do it is important. And, and it's probably the last thing on most people's list why it doesn't happen. Yeah, it's also education. I think the majority of Americans don't even know the thing that they're not doing. And then there's the folks who do know and they're kind of lazy about it. Hadi, here's my cynical question. I look at these announcements that are made, like Microsoft announcing they're going to quadruple their spending on security and Google. And of course, I know Code.org's announcements wouldn't fall into this category, but I always wonder, just as the journalist looking at this, were these companies planning on doing this anyway, and they're just using this moment as a time to promote their latest announcements? Or do you think these initiatives are sort of organic and actually do come out of the fact that the president has brought these folks together? Um, you're right to be cynical, and it's always a bit of both. Uh, I've been doing this type of thing multiple times with multiple administrations. Uh, you know, at Code.org, we've been involved with things of this nature with the Obama administration, with the Trump administration, and with the Biden administration, and it is always a bit of both. You know, I can give you an example under the Trump administration when there was an announcement around computer science, and the tech companies came together and announced money they were going to spend on that. And I was heavily involved in those conversations. And there was for sure cases where somebody was already going to do something, but now they put it in the announcement. And there were for sure cases where there wasn't a plan, but they said, you know what, we're going to, this is going to be the moment where we put real money behind this and a new initiative got, got basically put together at a major company because of the bully pulpit. I can't speak to the specifics of any of the companies in, in yesterday's announcement because I wasn't as closely involved in in helping them put together their the parts of their announcements. But I've seen both ends of what you said. The, the cynical case of like, just let's roll out the existing idea we had. The, it was already on the books, but now we're announcing it. And cases where the power of the, the White House as a convener causes people to take new actions that they wouldn't have otherwise. Well, Hadi... We jumped right into the White House news, and I don't want to cut that conversation off, but I do want to just sort of get an overall sense and give people a, a perspective on who you are and what you've done. You're a tech entrepreneur and investor, and uh, you founded uh, two startups, Tell Me Networks and also I Like. Tell Me was acquired by Microsoft. I Like was acquired by News Corp. And you and your brother, Ollie, started Code.org in part to give other kids the opportunities that you two had as kids. What's the status of Code.org? Where are you right now, um, so many years after your launch? So it's been uh, eight years since we launched Code.org uh, with the vision that every student in every school should have the opportunity to learn computer science. If you look within the United States, it's been going incredibly well. If you look globally, there's a lot of work to be done, and it's only recently that we really think of our vision as a global vision. Uh, in the U.S., we went from 10% of schools even offering computer science to now roughly half of all schools teach computer science. Uh, so the job is almost half done, but still half the schools in the country don't offer this course at all. Uh, in terms of participation in computer science, we've been working to increase 
the diversity of participation in K through 12 computer science programs. And that's also really improved, both in terms of the sheer numbers of young women or Black or Latino kids in computer science, or in the percentages relative to white and Asian men. Both of those things have been improving. In fact, if you look at AP computer science among young women or among Black, Latino, or Native American students, there's been a tenfold increase in just eight years. Ten times more girls are studying AP computer science than when we started. And it's been truly incredible. The fact that public schools all around the country, where there's none of their teachers ever studied computer science themselves, those teachers are now teaching computer science using the Code.org curriculum. And their students, diverse students from underrepresented groups traditionally that, that haven't been participants in the tech ecosystem, are now taking college-level AP courses and passing the exam. That's been phenomenal. But there's still a lot of room to grow. In the U.S., half the schools still don't teach computer science. Globally, 90% of schools don't teach computer science. And even in the schools that teach it, because it's optional, the majority of kids still don't take it. Uh, So the computer science AP exam is still far smaller than the English AP exam or the calculus AP exam. Even though the college board believes computer science is more important than calculus, the college board just administers the test. And the majority of kids, way more kids take calculus than computer science, even though its relevance to our day-to-day lives is far less. So if you had a magic wand, Hadi, and you could wave it to get that other half of all schools to get computer science embedded into their curriculum, what would what would you do and, and how would you implement that? It's funny that you said magic wand, because I regularly say that in U.S. education, there's no one lever you can pull. There's no one person to decide anything. Uh, You know, in some countries, there's a minister of education and everybody, every teacher reports there's a chain of command to the minister of education. In our country, there is no chain of command that way. The secretary of education manages the federal budget for education, which is just 7%. Every school district has an independently elected school board. And so the chain of command in Seattle public schools stops at the Seattle school board that is elected by the citizens. And there's some state laws and there's some federal laws, but it's it's really decentralized and there's no lever. But a magic wand would really help if you could just wave a wand across all of those groups. If there was one thing that would really change stuff, but I don't think our country is ready for this, it would be making computer science a requirement for graduation. Uh, And there are some states that have chosen to do that. Arkansas has done that, South Carolina, Nevada. I think those are the three states now where you can't go through K-12 schooling in the state of, of Nevada without taking computer science. Same thing with Arkansas. Once that happens, that addresses the diversity problem like this. Every student must take the class. It also addresses the issue of access. Every school must teach it. You know, all these other things get figured out. But most of the country isn't ready for computer science to be a graduation requirement. You know, there's schools that don't teach it yet. And if you said it's required to graduate, all you'd see is that graduation, you know, graduation rates would plummet. Arkansas spent many years in advance to get ready for that. And, you know, to, to really change the education system, there are no magic wands. It requires top-to-bottom mental shifts between the students, the parents, the teachers, principals, and the state departments of education. And so that's why it takes a long time. Yeah, and I'm guessing just the teachers themselves is a challenge to adequately teach computer science. So what what are you doing in that regard to make sure that the teachers are available to uh, 
teach what's advanced computer science right now. Yeah, the, the good thing is the teachers love this because teachers themselves are part of a system which they know needs to evolve. For them, they entered the field out of passion for helping kids, you know, prepare for the future. They don't need to be told that computer science is the future. They don't need to be told that there's money in it. <laughs> um, they're kind of waiting. They're like, why am I teaching this thing that I'm having struggling getting the kid interested in? You know, if they try just one hour of code, they see the kids love it. They light up. The kids are like, oh, finally, we're creating technology, you know. <laughs> But then, all right, now we need to get back to the things that the school requires us to do. Teachers, by and large, believe computer science is important for their kids. The majority of teachers think it should be required for students, and they're looking for guidance on how to make that happen. Uh, what Code.org provides is not only curriculum, we provide training programs for teachers. Over 100,000 teachers in this country have attended a Code.org workshop to begin teaching computer science, and that's part of how we are, are helping solve this problem. And we offer scholarships for teachers to basically attend these workshops to get the training so that a biology teacher or a history teacher can become a computer science teacher. But the other thing those teachers need is their administrations, the principal or the district saying, we're going to make this a real priority for the school or for the school district. So this has partly been a teacher-powered movement where the individual teacher says, I'm just going to do it in my classroom, as well as a top-down effort by, by districts or principals or states saying we're going to do a whole rollout. Yeah, I guess it's similar to in the software business where, you know, the land and expand approach where you you get the developers and in, in the company to adopt your software tools and then it bubbles up that the administration has to adopt it cuz every every uh service every provider and every uh developer is using it or in this case every teacher is using it. That that is exactly the way we think about it. Um you know, and in fact, we have a data dashboard that shows in a given school district how many teachers are using code.org already so that then we can talk to that school district and say, look at all these classrooms that are already doing it. And then look, these are the schools in your district that aren't, you know, and so is it right that's, you know, why don't we give it to every kid in the school district so that all the schools are on the same footing and then let's come up with a top-down plan. And we can even say, here's what your teacher's Here's the survey results of how much your teachers in your district like it. You know, uh, we, we have visibility because Code.org runs an online platform that, that tens of millions of students are learning from in schools. Uh, we have a level of visibility that most school districts don't have of their own students. And we offer that visibility to the school districts. I love the application of computer science because it answers the question of why do we need to know this in terms of math? And I can imagine that teachers probably have that resonate with students as well. So it's really interesting. Hadi, you separately had a really interesting public thread this week about your history and how it relates to current events in Afghanistan. And let's talk about that after this break. You're listening to GeekWire and we'll be right back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. 
We're here with Hadi Partovi. He is the CEO of Code.org, the nonprofit computer science education institution. And Hadi, you had a fascinating tweet this week related to a different global issue. We've been talking about cybersecurity, but of course, we have the events tragic in some ways that are happening in Afghanistan right now. And you related it to your experience growing up in Iran. Can you walk us through what types of memories the events in Afghanistan have brought to mind for you and your perspective on what's happening today, given your history? Sure. Um, First of all, I'd say this is a raw and personal topic for me. It's a very emotional one, and it's not one that I open up about very much. That, that Twitter story I told was the first time I've so publicly shared uh, basically that much about my childhood. And you know, I had I had shared parts of that story once before with my staff, and once with a, a, a code.org audience, sort of a, a, a much more limited group. But sharing it so openly is um, very raw, <laughs> shall I say? And actually the reactions I had on just from doing that. And also there's the response on Twitter uh, basically was, was very, very emotional for me for the, for the two days that that was happening. Cause you know, I, I've gone through my career. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm successful. I'm much older than the child that I was, but I also realized that there were many emotions I suffered during my childhood that I never really processed, or I never even had the emotions. You know, what I shared was looking at what's happening in Afghanistan as as all these people are fleeing the country out of fear of what's going to be the new government. Uh, this is not a new story. It's not a story that this is the first time that's happening. It's a story that happens almost on repeat. And it's all, especially a story that happens on repeat with U.S. intervention in the Middle East. Uh, that's not the only way that governments get overthrown or new folks come in and people run away. Uh, but it's certainly we see that on repeat, whether in Iraq, whether in uh, Syria, whether in, in Iran, whether in Afghanistan. And so the reason I shared my own personal stories to, for more people to to recognize the costs of war and the challenge of trying to have as an outside country trying to fix another country, to, which is just an unnatural thing and usually goes poorly. But then I also wanted to share my own personal experiences, which I think, you know, from just seeing how many people responded, I got responses from Iranians from the past or from Afghani students or children uh, in the present day saying we're going through the same exact thing right now. And, 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 you know, the, the life I lived when was, you know, when I was six years old is when the Iranian revolution happened uh, and the, the, the government got overthrown. And at, at the moment of the revolution, it was a monarchy under a shah that had, uh, you know, had a secret police and he was, you know, had been torturing people. And there was a bunch of people who were unhappy about a, effectively a puppet monarchy that had been put in place by the United States. And so there was briefly a moment of pride around overthrowing that government and creating a, you know, a new government. But as I wrote uh, in my uh, tweets, you know, the people who overthrew the bad guys became the new bad guys. And when I was six, uh, you know, I remember in the moment there was just a lot of noise and, you know, shouting in the streets. But then all sorts of things changed in my life. You know, my school books were taken away and new school books were given to us because here's the new history that we need to learn. And it makes you question, well, what was wrong with the old books? And can I trust the new books? Can you trust any of the books if if they're going to just be changed out? You know, what am I learning in school that I shouldn't be? Or what am I learning? What was I missing before? What am I missing now? 
And then Iran turned into increasingly a, a totalitarian police state uh, where you couldn't trust anybody because anybody who criticized the government, just bad things would happen. People would, would be disappeared. People would get beaten in the streets or whipped in the streets. Little things could cause major issues. So, you know, as a woman, if the hijab you were wearing got blown off your head by the wind, you could get beaten and whipped in the moment. Uh, so I remember when it was a windy day, my mom would be extra stressed out to, to hold on to that hijab tightly, you know, just in case out of, out of an issue of safety, you know. Um, and I remember how much she was scared anytime a car that looked like a police car, even if it wasn't a police car, you know, she'd freeze up because like, let's be careful, like, let's not get noticed. And uh, living in fear is not easy. And then when the, the war with Iraq broke out, there was just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of nights of just hanging out in the basement while our neighborhood was getting bombed. And I didn't even think, I don't remember at the time wondering, is this normal or is this weird or what's going on? But I remember my parents uh, taught me a way of holding my ears that was, they said the strongest way to hold your ears is to do it this way, uh, is to hold you with your thumbs on your ears and your, the rest of your fingers covering your eyes. And I was like too young to even process, why am I doing that? Like that's, that's what they say is the strongest way. And what they really wanted to say is you should also close your eyes <laughs> and cover your eyes. So I, and I would just sit in that mode uh, for three hours until they tap my shoulder to be like, all right, it's over. Um, and yeah, at the time, that was just what I did. And thinking about it later is just like a brutal way to spend your childhood. The thing that struck me about the, and, and thanks for sharing those thoughts, and I want to ask about how it compares to what's going on in Afghanistan. But one of the things that really struck me, Hadi, in your your tweets when you were elaborating on this was the idea that when you walked to school, you would walk across an American flag and to walk across it to disgrace this country that uh, had had you know, subjugated a lot of the people and created a lot of uh, evil in, in Iran. And then you came to the United States and you've had and you had so much success. And I'm just curious how you were able to reconcile those two vastly different experiences. And it just really struck me the the imagery of that based on who you are now and the success that you've had in this country. And I'm just curious how you've come to terms with that. Well, when I was living in Iran, I wanted nothing more than to come to America. That is true of most Iranians. It's, I'm sure, true of most Afghanis. And America has always been, and I think and I hope will always be, a beacon for much of the rest of the world as a, as a place of opportunity, as a place of hope, as a place people want to come to. Not necessarily because of what America is, but because of what America stands for. And we have always stood for freedom and justice and opportunity. We don't always do the perfect job at that. There's lots of people who are American, living in America, who feel like we don't have adequate freedom or we don't have adequate opportunity, but at least it is something we stand for. And that's something we stand for globally. And when I was going through that in Iran, to me, it was super obvious, even though I was seven or eight years old, that this is just brainwashing. I knew what brainwashing meant. <laughs> I knew that I wanted to go to America. And I, as I would walk across the American flag, I wasn't thinking any hateful thoughts towards America. I also was too young to know that the bombings that were happening were funded by America. That's not, that wasn't something I learned until later. I didn't know that Iran's democracy had been 
you know, subjugated by the CIA who put a puppet monarch in place because they wanted cheaper access to oil. I, you know, I hadn't reached the level of grades. Every Iranian learns that as part of their history, but I was too young to know that. So I had no reason to feel negatively. Uh, so, you know, I would shout death to America and death to Israel at the top of my voice. I was seven years old. I didn't even know. I don't think I could have placed Israel on a map uh, at the time when I was doing that. But I did know that I need to say these words or else I'll get in trouble. And, you know, shouting death to America at the top of your lungs when you secretly wish you'd be in America, but scared that nobody should find that out is just a complicated place to be. Uh, but there was never a point that I felt critical of America. I just wanted to leave this scary country and be there. Uh, and I'm so lucky that having come to America, I've managed to, that basically, I, I am an embodiment of the American dream. I'm an embodiment of why people want to come to America. It's because you can arrive to a country with nothing uh, and with hard work and education, get somewhere. And not every country provides that kind of opportunity to people. Do you think that American ideal is still with us today as it was for you when you came here at the age of 12? Um, that's a great question. I think it has always been and continues to be a work in progress. Certainly, you know, when when the last administration banned Iranians from coming to this country, that certainly didn't help <laughs> with that American ideal. If, you know, if my story had happened 20 years later, I would have been banned from entrance. Uh, now, not, it wasn't easy for me to enter under the Reagan administration. It took four times we applied, three times we were rejected. Finally, we got in. Then you know, we weren't, we were on tourist visas. We applied for student visas. We got rejected. We got deported. We reapplied. It was messy and, and not easy, but we finally made it. Whereas under the Trump administration, we would have been simply banned. And then in terms of the actual experience in this country, uh, I think Americans largely know that the pathway to opportunity feels broken. And you can measure that either in terms of the divide between the haves and have nots or the growing inequality gap or just the rising expenses in certain categories of stuff, such as healthcare or education, that don't see simultaneous rises in wages. So if wages stay flat while healthcare and education grow in cost, people end up feeling poorer at the end of the day. Uh, and their ability to, to migrate from the lower quartile of income to the upper quartile is less now than it used to be. And this has actually been a major motivator for me to start Code.org, because technology provides opportunity. Everybody sees the highest paying jobs, the direction for the future of innovation every, in every industry is in so many ways intricately linked to technology. And the reason I was so successful isn't just because America is the land of opportunity. I came to this country an extremely good coder. Uh, I taught myself on a Commodore 64 in Iran, but you know, I, I started working at tech companies when I was 15 years old, and that was basically a self-taught kind of thing. And so, you know, there's this industry here in America that will hire every talented software engineer or cybersecurity professional or machine learning expert, no matter where they learned it. If you're really good, you can get really good pay. And the potential for opportunity working in technology and computer science is much greater than the reality because our education system doesn't offer that pathway or that doorway for enough students. And so the reason I, I started Code.org is because that's my part in helping make sure the American dream and opportunity stay alive. My dad brought the floppy disks for the code that I wrote uh, back when I was, you know, nine, 10 years old. 
And we now have a refurbished Commodore 64 at, at the code.org offices. And those floppy disks still work. And you can actually put them in and run the programs that I wrote in Iran. It's one of the most unique things to have code from the 1980s uh, written on another continent in the middle of a war and revolution. And you know the, the, the ones and zeros still work. Hadi, just getting back onto that theme on kind of the entrepreneurial nature of folks that come here, they're self-taught coders or what have you. It's a land of opportunity. Do you think things have changed just because of globalization and the fact that maybe uh, you can stay put now in India or China or Israel or wherever uh, or Iran and maybe just be a great coder and stay within the confines of that geography? Or is there still a drive, do you see, especially with maybe the entrepreneurs that you fund or the developers they're hiring to, to come and work for a company that has uh, a headquarters and is operating in the United States? And has that changed in the last five, 10 years? And has it sped up because of COVID? Because now people are spread wherever. It, it has changed in America. I think to maintain its edge needs to work hard to, to maintain its leadership uh, in terms of attracting talent who wants to make it to this country. And it's changed for a number of reasons, globalization, the growth of other economies, the anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric coming from this country, especially under the last administration. You know, the, just the rhetoric alone makes people think maybe I shouldn't come there because will I be safe? You know, uh, and I can understand the reason for folks to want to protect our borders or to make sure that immigration is legal. Uh, but I think what we all need to recognize that this country was built by immigrants. We are almost all immigrants other than the Native Americans, wave after wave from different countries and different groups. And immigrants aren't just part of the ideals of this country. If you just look, if you purely care about winning, much of the things that we are proud of were invented in this country by immigrants. Uh, much of the largest uh, parts of our economy are, are due to inventions or, or things that have been uh, immigrant-led. And so it's important for national competitiveness and for our society to, to continue to welcome immigrants and to recognize that things like the pandemic or growing, growing globalization are on their own creating incentives for people to stay put. So we need to not only not scare them away, we need to make extra effort to get the, the world's smartest, most talented people to want to continue to come to America. I just want to tie it into the current events of of this week and over the last several weeks with Afghanistan, when you see that happening and you see the stories and the photos emerging from Kabul, are you emboldened that the United States can help those uh, Afghans get to the United States and start a life as you started your, your or restarted your life here in the United States? And uh, do you think there's opportunity for those folks within our borders here in the U.S.? That's a great question. First of all, with respect to that war, I think for over 10 years, it's been this problem of we know we need to end this war and it's not going to be pretty. And it's just a question of who's going to end it and, and how. Uh, and, you know, nobody's happy with the way this current transition is happening. But also nobody was, you know, if we couldn't continue this war for decades longer, you know, it's just this, it's been a mire that, that we've been that we, we need to get out of. But if there's one thing that we should do as part of getting out of it is to make sure, especially the Afghanis who helped American troops need to get taken care of, because there's people who put their lives at risk because they believed in America. Uh, and, you know, 
we have a brand around the, you know, America as a brand in the, in the world stands for certain things. And people need to feel that if I'm helping America, that it's not going to hurt me, that I'm not going to get in trouble, that I'm not going to, you know, put my family at risk. And if America makes a commitment to me, that it's going to follow through on that commitment. So for me, I think what's most important is the people who aided our military forces, who aided our coalition, need to get taken care of and, and feel like they have opportunity. And then on top of that, I, I believe that as, as America, we, we ha- as the wealthiest country in the world, we should do more than just a little bit. You know, we should do our fair share of supporting refugees from countries that, that uh, especially a country like this, where we are a pretty big cause of the problem, we should bear a fair share of helping the, the people who want to escape find a better living. Hadi, you said that you walked out of the cybersecurity meeting at the White House this week more optimistic than when you walked in. And granted, as you said, it was a low bar. But in that same spirit, are there things in the larger world, either in your work at code.org or the things you're seeing in this larger global atmosphere that give you hope? If so, what does give you hope? I'm a naturally very hopeful person. And I think part of that is just informed by the story of my life, because if you consider where I started and where I am, I, I'm i a pretty extreme, unique, it's just a unique arc for somebody to start from a basement holding their ears, getting bombed, and then to, to be meeting with the president and the CEOs of the largest companies in the world. That's a big, big distance. And I, I, I frankly, I wake up every morning in disbelief that this is the life I'm living. But because of that, I'm always hopeful that that... My own experience is that things get better, uh, and over the long arc of history, things bend towards justice and towards goodness. I truly believe that that people everywhere around the world are trying to make life better for the for the human race, uh, and so I'm hopeful. So anytime I see disasters, what I think about is that other humans are seeing these disasters. Most people aren't watching what's going on in Afghanistan and thinking, "Yeah, we should do that again." They're thinking, "How do we prevent that next time?" Unfortunately, in our country right now, too many people are just blaming another side rather than recognizing we are one country and, uh, you know, we collectively are accountable for what happens. I very much am saddened to see the division in our country, but at the same time, we are all collectively learning lessons. The next time there's a war in the Middle East that is is up for grabs, I think Congress is going to be less likely to authorize it. And I think the citizens will be less supportive of going to war than they would have been before seeing these images. So I think over the long run, any of the problems we're facing, I think humanity is learning. And I believe that the future is always brighter than the past. Well, Hadi Partovi, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for hosting me again. Hadi Partovi is a technology entrepreneur and investor and CEO of the National Computer Science Education nonprofit, Code.org, based in Seattle. Thank you for listening to GeekWire. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll talk to you next time on GeekWire.